All right, well, as Pastor Jim has already said, we're going to be getting a series tonight on Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. Let me ask, how many of you have read the book before? All right, good. So you're all experts at Respectable (laughs) Sins? won't presume that. Uh, first, I was flattered when he asked me if I would do the introductory lesson, and I thought, well, no, he probably just wanted to get somebody who was the most experienced, so that's why I got picked for this, but no, I'm, I'm excited. I've, I've gone through it twice in different small group studies, both here at the church, and in fact, when I pulled my copy off the bookshelf, the, the folded up sheets that I had in there. I was looking at the the dates and it was um, 2012. So I don't know if that was the first or the second time that I went through it, but uh, that's what been 11, 12, 11 and a half years now since that time. It was in the fall of that year, but it uh, made a a big impression on me. In fact, so much so that when uh, I was meeting with Pastor Jim back in the fall when he was asking if I would if I was, had the interest in serving as an elder someday, one of the questions he asked was, what were some of the books that have made the, the biggest impression on you? And there were, there were a number of them, but one of the ones I mentioned was Jerry Bridges' book on respectable sense. Um, so I will be talking about kind of the first three chapters of that in our time together tonight. Uh, well, I want to hold off a little bit. Let me ask you, uh, if you've grown up in a, a Christian home like me, you've probably heard about sin for as long as you can remember. And with Sunday school and, and church and, and lessons, uh, there are a lot of synonyms in Scripture for sin. So what, what are some of the ones that come to your mind when you hear the word sin? Other words in the Bible that are used in place of that, in general terms? Transgression, iniquity, Iniquity. offense, Offense. evil, Evil. okay, pride, Pride, which is the the root of pretty much of all sin. And we could go, we could get more specific to go in different types of sin. Any other more general terms? So we've talked about evil, iniquity, transgressions, lawlessness, lawlessness. good, I mentioned that tonight. Well, here's a little word cloud and might not be real visible to some of you in the back, but this, there's about a dozen or so terms here that are all found in the King James and in many other newer versions of Scripture. So you can see some of the general terms that refer to sin, uh, many of which you've mentioned here tonight. So let me ask, can anyone look back over the last 24 hours of your life and state with confidence that you are innocent of sin in the last 24 hours? Anybody bold enough? Okay, we'll make it easier. Well, this is, this is the Lord's Day. This should have been the easiest day. Come on. Twelve hours. Six hours. Nope. No takers. So we, when we realize that it's not just the sins of commission, but the sins of omission, those things that we should have done or that the Spirit impressed us to do or say that we didn't do, we realize that sin is ever-present with us, and it's a... 
it's a struggle for, for all of us. When I looked up sin in Nave's topical Bible, which is a common uh, reference for Bible study, I was shocked, maybe it shouldn't have been, to find that there were 15 pages, two columns wide of references to sin throughout the Bible. So uh, it's, it's there. Uh, the Bible is an account of God's dealing with man, and so it's an account of sin when it, when it really comes down to it. Uh, sin appears embarrassingly early in the scripture. What chapter do we get to when sin first makes its appearance? Chapter 3. Yep, we don't, we, we don't even get into the end of the third chapter. So in Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall. So we have Adam and Eve succumbing to the temptation of the serpent. That continues throughout the scripture, completely through to Revelation chapter 20, where we have Satan ultimately defeated and cast into the lake of fire, along with all those who've rejected God. So that if, if you follow the scripture through, that's from one end to the other, from chapter 3 to the chapter 20 of Revelation. Uh, and those two bookends of sin, I think, help us understand what sin is at its core. It's really human rebellion against God. That's how Satan, the serpent, got Adam and Eve to fall. That He said, you want to be like God, don't you? Uh, God is withholding something good from you. And ever since that time, that's been pretty much his same ploy. Uh, Adam and Eve defied God by eating the forbidden fruit. And we know that Satan became who he was. He was cast out of heaven because of his rebellion against God. And ultimately, it was that rebellion that sealed his fate at the end of Revelation. So sin, sin and rebellion really go hand in hand. So we see that, that sin at its core is really rebellion against God. But what are, what are some other ways that we can describe sin or, or look at it? And this um, now I'm going to be kind of covering what's in these first few chapters of the book. Uh, sin is really the breaking of God's law. And lawlessness was one of the synonyms that was brought up here tonight. First John 3, 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, John said. So when we, when we defy God's law, we are sinning. And his law is there for our good, for, for us to grow in righteousness. So lawlessness is really the basis of sin. And that's why rebellion is associated with that. Secondly, uh, sin, we know, leaves us condemned and in need of justification and redemption. Theological terms that we hear preached a lot here. Romans 5.18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So sin has a cost. Uh, we are condemned. We are guilty. And that, that price that had to be paid was the justification that Christ provided for us. Uh, we also need to consider that sin can be our outright actions, those sins that we commit. But also sin can be in our thoughts and our attitudes. And Christ made that very clear in his teaching. In fact, I think... If you went through Christ's words in the, in the New Testament, he probably talked more about sin in terms of heart attitude and thoughts 
than in wrong actions. So he made it, brought it down really where we live. Uh, sin, when he talked with the Pharisees, they were doing all the right things outwardly. In fact, people looked at them and they thought they've got it all together. They're really holy people. Yet their hearts were totally corrupt. And he talked about how the, it was like a cup that looks beautiful on the outside, but is totally filthy inside. So they were right about managing what other people saw, but they were hiding their inner evil. So Christ really took the Old Testament law and he amplified it and talked about murder and adultery as sins of the mind. Prior to that, people thought those were sins of the hands and sins of the body, not sins of the the brain. But Christ talked about how our, our thoughts can even be evil and sinful. Another point we need to remember is that sin, although it is uh, an affront to God, it's an open rebellion against God, and our sins do defy God, it also can impact others, uh, our society, our relationships, our families, our own bodies. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of scriptures about that, and the book gets into those, but I just want to mention here a couple different verses um, in Psalm 51.4, David, after his sin with Bathsheba, when he was repentant, he said, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So David recognized the sin that he'd committed, and he, he rightly said it was against God that he had sinned. But we know the sordid story that followed that. Uh, Pastor Jim preached through this this in a year ago or so as we went through 2 Samuel. So we, we saw how his sin led to the death of Uriah at David's hand. It led to the death of that child who was unnamed. It led to terrible things in David's children. So that sin continued to have repercussions. And that's something we, we don't often think about. We think, well, this is my secret sin or this is just affecting me. But our sin affects other people, and we see that in our society today as well. I can't think of David without thinking of another man, young man, who had every opportunity to sin, and yet he chose to do what was right, and that was Joseph in Potiphar's house. So here was Joseph in a pagan culture, uh, being seduced by a woman who he could have partaken of carnal pleasures with, and in his culture, he probably could have gotten away with that, uh, and nobody would have thought that was wrong. And what did he say in, in Genesis 39.9? He said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So he recognized that that sin would be against God, as David did after the fact, after he sinned with Bathsheba in a, in a similar situation. Uh, and God was faithful to Joseph. He didn't immediately receive the reward, but uh, God remembered him in the prison, and he eventually was elevated to a position that God had preserved him for through all of that. So sin does affect our families. It affects other people. It affects relationships. It's not uh, only us that are affected by that. Another point I want to make is that uh, sin is so much part of our human nature, it's part of our DNA, that um, it's often hard to recognize and root that sin out. David also said 
in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So we, I think sometimes we excuse a lot of our sin, especially the respectable type of sins that this book covers in the, the most of the latter chapters as just the, the way I was born, or that's how I was raised, or that's my personality, or I'm a redhead. Of course I've got a short temper. That's, I don't use that excuse. I have a, a daughter who's a redhead, so. Uh, and there might be something to that. I don't know. But uh, people talk about uh, their family or something and excuse their sin. And I think it, it kind of reminds me, or something that reminds me of this, um, there's, there was a commercial not long ago about being nose blind. Do you know what that is? Mm-hmm. Nose blind. You, you're exposed to a smell for a while, and after a while you're no longer aware of it. You become nose blind to it. I think it was for fabric softener or something like that. But they were trying to say, we don't smell bad odors after a while. And uh, I had an experience a number of years ago. I was traveling with a group of men. This was actually a faculty chorus. And we stayed in people's homes at night or sometimes a hotel, but occasionally families would put us up. So I went to this beautiful home. And I won't say where it was. I don't want to get anybody in trouble with it. a beautiful home in a city not far from here. And we, we sang in the church. And, um, and they put me up in their son's bedroom, which was very nice. He was off at school. He was in college at the time. And I walked, I walked in the front door, and I thought, wow, this is a pretty plush place. This is really nice. And as soon as I went in the bedroom and, and got, closed the door and got my bag and stuff, I was overcome with this horrible stench. <laughs> and it almost took my breath away. And I thought, what in the world? Did something die in here? <laughs> and so I'm, I'm looking around, and then and finally um, I was going to hang up my jacket and stuff so I open up the closet door and there's all these athletic shoes cleats and stuff and their son apparently was quite the athlete and um, had odor control foot control problems Uh, and so some of these shoes must have been rotting but the (laughs) the family was aware unaware of that I don't know if they never opened the door or they were just used to it but it was, it was so bad, it took me a, uh, like over an hour to fall asleep because <laughs> I was just constantly aware of this. And, uh, but I think, and eventually, and when I woke up in the morning, I thought, where am I? Oh, I know where I am. I said, okay. you, know, you wake up in a strange place. But our, our sin can be the same way. We, we, we live in the stench of our sin, and we accept it. And it's just, you know, how, how life is. We, we excuse things. We uh, put things off. We don't get things straightened out. So as I said, we're, we're going to be spending some time in these Sunday evenings messages surveying this book, Respectable Sins. And this, the subtitle of his book, I think appropriately, is Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. And that's really what it's like. We tolerate certain things. We think, well, I don't do that. I would never do anything like that. But there are other little little things that we call little things that are really our, our big things that we accept. So um, even if you have already read the book, which many of you said that you did, or, even, or participated in a, a small group study, I think you'll find that the things that we're going to be talking about over these next months Uh, are ones that even the most seasoned saints struggle with. 
And if in the event you feel like you've matured to the point where you don't need this, then you probably have fallen to chapter 11, <laughs> which is pride. So that's one of those sins that all of us will continually battle. So um, what do I mean by respectable sins for those have, who have not looked at this book before? Uh, Bridges, Jerry Bridges pointed out that many faithful churchgoers uh, focus so much on the major sins of society, the things that make the news, that they become blind to the many subtle sins that we overlook or tolerate or excuse. Uh, we might justify our actions comparing ourselves with pagans that we work with or that live down the street from us and wake us up with our loud parties at 2 a.m. or other things. Or we, we look at the major sinners whose mugshots we see on the 6 p.m. news. Uh, those people like child abusers, meth manufacturers, cop killers, all those people whose faces pop up there. But uh, the respectable sins that we're going to be looking at are, are not so rare that we can commit them out of ignorance. They're things that are clear in Scripture. Uh, each is thoroughly described and presented for our benefit, for our warning. Uh, all of them are affronts to God's holiness. That's what makes them sins. And because they are, they're barriers to our sanctification, to our growth. Consequently, these same sins are threats to the ministry of our church. We hear constantly about the one another's. And if you are caught up in these types of sins, uh, these respectable sins that we'll be studying together, then you're not going to be successful in accomplishing what God wants to accomplish through you among our body, among our members. The good news, though, is that the gospel has power to conquer all of these sins. God doesn't give us commands that he doesn't give us the power to address through the Holy Spirit. I want to next uh, talk a little bit about the disappearance of sin today. Uh, what's, what's happened to sin in our culture? 30 years ago, and I grew up in church, so 30 years ago, I was already 31 years old. Uh, preachers spoke of two categories of people in the world, and I heard constantly about the saved and the unsaved. Those terms were pretty much the only terms I heard used, or maybe the saved and the lost. And then as time has gone on, I've noticed that those terms are used less and less frequently. Uh, they've pr pretty much been replaced by believers and unbelievers. And I think those, those terms still have meaning, believers and unbelievers, but I've, I've begun to question why, why the shift from saved and unsaved to believers and unbelievers. I'm not a church historian, and I'm not here to attack anybody who uses those terms, because I've used those terms, believers and unbelievers, but as I've thought about that a little more, I'm wondering whether the term unsaved was deemed to be too harsh, maybe too threatening, to people in society today, that it, it sounded like it was going to push them away. Uh, maybe because it implies the need to be saved from something, that they are going to be damned to hell because of their sin, 
and in our self-sufficient culture, people don't want to be told that they need to be saved. They, need to, they feel like they need to do something on their own. So you can say believing and unbelieving, and that's maybe less threatening to people today. So again, I'm not criticizing and saying we shouldn't use those terms, but I'm wondering if maybe even the use of terminology is a little bit of our shift in how we talk about things differently because sin has sort of disappeared from church today. Believing is, is less threatening than uh, repenting and doing those types of things. So I think churches talk more, more about believing. You can, you can believe in pretty much anything today, even Santa Claus. So I've, I was on the out exercising the other day and somebody had a t-shirt and said, I believe. And I thought, oh, it's a Christian and got closer and it was Santa Claus. So uh, there's different things that people believe in. In the, uh, the early chapters of Bridges' book, he, con- he considers and discusses the disappearance of sin in the last half century, both in our culture and sadly in many churches today, that sin is not a topic that is popular anymore. Now, I'm, I'm proud to say in our church, we hear sin preached against, and we, we hear about the importance of having our hearts right. But in a, in a culture where everyone's opinion is equally valid in our secular culture, uh, an increasing number of people really don't have a sense of sin or even shame. Uh, it probably doesn't surprise you to hear that many mainline denominational churches are, are soft on sin. And if sin is brought up in many of those churches, sin has been redefined as not recognizing or providing for the poor or immigrants or refugees. So social justice has become the, the replacement there. But also, I think many in many evangelical circles, churches, there's an attempt to be seeker-sensitive and appeal to a broader audience. And, and Bridges makes this point. So they've soft-pedaled sin. And we use other words other than sin from the pulpit like poor choices or errors in judgment or mistakes. You've made mistakes uh, and not use the word sin. And in, in our society today, we don't use the same words for sin either. So people don't commit adultery. They have an affair. Um, they're not drunkards. They're suffering from alcoholism. And they don't steal. They commit fraud. So we've renamed it and made it a little bit softer. I'm going to play a a very short video clip here for you. Uh, And this is a a well-known pastor when he was asked about sin and how he talks about sin with his people. And I think you'll you'll recognize him. I didn't have a chance to test this all out because I came right from another meeting. Hopefully it will play if it doesn't, I have another quote from the same person I can share with you. So. I know that I'm doing what I believe to the best of my ability that God's called me to do, and that's to bring hope to people, to try to lift people, and to try to get people interested that are not necessarily churchgoers. And I think that's where, you know, we've seen a lot of favor. And like I mentioned earlier, a lot of people that watch don't go to church. And so, you know, I just feel like that God's given us all different gifts and and uh, just, I stay focused on what God's called me to do. Do you ever feel like you need to talk about sin more? You know, when I talk, I just feel like I do it in a different way. I, I get that, you know, that criticism sometimes, but, you know, I'm still one of the old-fashioned ones that give an altar call at every service and on every television broadcast. And, you know, when I talk about it, I talk about, you know, how we can become better, how we can overcome. And I just, um, 
you know, I, I probably categorize it bigger, and, but, but I don't feel like I'm supposed to go and beat people down. Most people know what they're doing wrong. You know, the scripture I come back to, it says the goodness of God leads people to repentance. And so when I tell people like I will tomorrow night that, you know what, you may have made mistakes. You may have done wrong, but you know what, God is on your side. You can receive forgiveness. He's got mercy for every sin. You know, that's how I do it. You know, we've seen uh, thousands of people come to know the Lord. So I think you can see from that how hedging and equivocating a little bit there, uh, using words like, um, you may have made mistakes. And he wants people to understand how we can become better, how, how we can overcome. And he draws a huge crowd. I mean, he gets 40,000 people a week at services. And he said, we've had many people come to the Lord, but I'm... I'm concerned how many of those people that are coming to the Lord are coming to an event and how many people have truly repented and understand what sin is and what their sin is in God's eyes. Uh, in another interview uh, with CBN, actually on a Christian station, I'm not sure who was interviewing him here, he said, when I grew up, the devil was the reason why I had a headache or the devil was the reason I got mad today. We always blame the devil. I think today when I say the enemy, I like to make it broader. Uh, sometimes the enemy can be our own thoughts. We've trained ourselves the wrong way. Our enemy can be our own lack of discipline. So even the enemy, which we would understand to be Satan, he's, he's saying maybe it's not Satan that's causing you to sin. It's your thoughts and it's other things. So trying to explain all of, all of that away. I think uh, lest we be too self-congratulatory and say, well, you know, I don't espouse that. I wouldn't even think that that would be the right way to approach sin and to talk to people about sin. It's important for us to consider how we, how we view sin in our lives in many of our more conservative churches. I think we often rank sins and think about gross sins and obvious sins, and yet those smaller things like gossip or um, impatience or some of the other things that we're going to be studying together. I think in doing that, we, we overlook the, the subtle sins of the heart that we can harbor and that can really derail us and stop our sanctification. It's those sins that we'll be talking about here in this book. Uh, Confronting the sins we tolerate, the subtitle, uh, are those, these types of sins are, are no less an affront to God's holiness. The last uh, point I want to make here, uh, Bridges points out uh, this idea of the malignancy of sin. And in Christ's teaching, he often used this idea of leaven. And the leaven, he mentioned the leaven of the Pharisees, but also talked about how leaven was symbolic of the spread of sin. Just like leaven triggers the release of gas that causes the, the bubbles that make bread rise. Uh, speaking to his apostles in Matthew 16, 6, he said, Watch and <clears throat> beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So to the Jews, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a time that they had to completely purge their house of all leaven. And I didn't realize it, but uh, to observing Jews today, they have an, an, a de-leavening process that they have to go through. And even some Messianic Jews, believing Jews, uh, converts, will <clears throat> observe this the same way. So the, um, the action of leaven, uh, I think, means a little to us today, unless you bake bread. But 
Bridges brings up this idea of malignancy. All of us are familiar with what malignancy means in cancer. Uh, even the utterance of the word cancer causes concern and, and fear in many hearts. And although some cancers are contained and can easily be treated or removed, uh, there are types that are malignant and metastasized, and they can send out uh, cells to other parts of the body where it will arise and affect other organs. So in introducing these different sins, Bridges really tries to make the point that sin is a malignancy. Any of these sins are like a cancer that can get into the body and it can spread and it affects other organs and other parts. Uh, Bridges lost his first wife to a very aggressive form of cancer. I think she passed away within 18 months from the time that she was diagnosed with it. So he understands what that is. Another way that I think sin is a malignancy is it's often overlooked until it's grown to the point where it's a threat to life. And our sins can be that way too. Our sins can grow and then they, they reach a point where they just can overwhelm us or others around us. So Bridges um, makes the point here, and I'll just leave you with this quote. He said, herein lies the malignancy of sin. Christ suffered because of our sin. So cancer is not a, it's not a contagious thing. It's not something that you can catch from someone else. As far as we know, we don't view it as, as a contagion. And yet our cancer of sin was cast on Christ. He was pure, perfect. He was spotless. And yet our sin, our malignancy was put on him. And that was the point that I think he was making with this statement. So he had to suffer our cancer. He had to die our death because of our sin. And that, that should make us aware of the importance of finding what these issues are in our life, uh, rooting them out, and not allowing these sins that we tolerate to overwhelm us. So uh, next week, Bruce Cox will be with us, and he will be dealing with the remedy for sin as we go over the next few chapters of his introduction, how we are to begin to deal with that. And that will be followed by individual respectable sins, I think a week at a time. So I hope you're looking forward to it, to this series, like me, and how God will use this upcoming teaching from his word to help us grow in our sanctification.